Um, if you are new to Bayless, if you're a newcomer here, please, uh, would you fill out one of those cards that's on your seat? It's the best way to get connected here at Bayless. Um, but you can expect that we, uh, uh, here's what, you, yeah, this, this service is going to be a pretty simple one every week. We're about, it's about the good news of Jesus Christ, about rehearsing what Jesus has done, about remembering it in every element of our service. It's not a bis- bunch of, uh, I should say, not a bunch of, of uh, disconnected things that the songs and the, uh, the sermon itself, and then later when we take the Lord's Supper, it's all a cohesive whole to highlight who Jesus is and what he has done, to make sense of it um, to all of our senses in, in some ways. And so, um, we, uh, but one of the most important things we do every Sunday, intentionally so, is devote our time to reflect on what God has already said. And we are in a book in the Old Testament that you may be familiar with, you may not be familiar with, but I find that generally speaking, even if you are not a Christian, that our culture knows at least some of the basic events in Exodus. If you've ever heard of the crossing of the Red Sea or the Egyptian plagues, that's where this comes from. Now, we're going to get there here soon, but we're now in really the preparation of Israel's rescuer, which may go differently than you expect. It's not like the hero stories that we're used to as a culture, but nonetheless, I find it to be actually much more powerful. Um, We are um, uh, again, in the second book of the Bible, and even as it is about Moses, this passage that uh, was read to us just now, read for us, it is written by Moses, which I imagine would have been strange for him. It seems, again, Moses is writing not just about these events that took place in Israel, but took place in his own life. You have to imagine this would be particularly difficult when it comes to this passage where Moses fails And not just fails, but fails miserably. This would have been perhaps Moses' greatest regret. Well, I take that back. There is one we will get to. But one of the greatest regrets in Moses' life. So much so that it takes him about 40 years to get over it. You have any regrets like that? Before we get too far ahead, I want to, again, uh, to point out where we're at. Exodus chapter 2, verse 11 And we're going to consider not just Moses's failure, but we're going to consider, in a sense, failure, generally speaking. Our failure as well. And what God might not only be up to in the midst of our failure, but how he might be making use of it for his glory and for our good. Specifically, we're going to split our passage into three parts. We're going to look at the certainty of failure, number one. Number two, we're going to look at the school of failure. And then number three, we'll look at the surprising success of failure. You ready? Let's look at the first, the certainty of failure. Now, last week, we looked at the incredible events surrounding Moses's birth, including how Moses was rather remarkably rescued from, well, there's no other way to put it, genocide of Hebrew baby boys who were being thrown into the Nile River. He would have been the sole surviving uh, boy from his generation, so far as we know. And somehow, in the midst of Israel's darkest moments, and it's hard to get darker than this, God was raising up a rescuer who would be raised in the the house of Pharaoh himself. It's remarkable. Ironic is too, too small a word for it. It's clearly directed by God's own 
hand. In fact, Acts chapter 7 tells us, summarizing these events as Stephen in his speech summarizes to the crowd, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Or as Leland Riken puts it, uh, one commentator, Moses was being trained for Pharaoh's overthrow right under Pharaoh's nose. It's remarkable. So remarkable that, again, more than coincidence has to be going on here. The events have to have been steered by a sovereign God, as I put it last week, who has both hands on the steering wheel of history. And all this leads us at the edge of our seats, if we're reading along with it, again, if we can hold off on what we know from this passage thus far, so we want to find out what happened next to Moses. After all, this is a remarkable origin story. We're going to find out um, that, uh, it, we find out in later in the Bible, that the events, though, that we pick up with in verses 11, again, when it says, one day when Moses had grown up, according to the book of Acts and Hebrews, this took place when he was about 40 years old. About 36 years later, if he was nursed by his mother for four years before giving him to Pharaoh, or Pharaoh's daughter, I should say, four decades, four decades, in which Moses would have been, you could say, doing pretty well. It seems like he knew that he had come from the Hebrews. It wasn't a big surprise to him. Still, his mom may have told him the story of how she had rescued him from that Nile River, drawn him out, a helpless little Hebrew, her gift from the heavens. You can imagine her, his adoptive mother saying, still, even though he is a Hebrew and knew he was a Hebrew, he would have been, by most appearances, Egyptian. So much so, when he goes to Midian, what do they mistake him as? As one of those Egyptians. His dress, perhaps his hairstyle, perhaps he spoke Egyptian and maybe even worshipped their gods. So far as anyone knew or cared, this was a prince of Egypt. And the fact that it took him nearly 40 years to stand up for his people in the events that we're going to look at seems to indicate he was pretty happy there. He would have known, of course, that his people, the Hebrews, were slaves. But so far as we know, for some reason unknown, he maintained his distance until, for some reason, as he decided in verse 11, he goes out to his people and looks upon their burdens. It could be that this was his first experience of the brutality of what his people had to go through firsthand. Or it could be that the violence against them had gone to a new level. But something about seeing an Egyptian slave driver beating one of his people to death it awoke something in him, a mixture of compassion and deep anger. And suddenly, I think as one of my friends put it, Moses becomes Batman. Taking justice into his own hands. Seriously, it's hard to read these events and not hear, as this is the nerd in me, but hear Batman saying, I am vengeance, I am the night. It could be that he waited until night and or simply followed the Egyptian after he finished his beating into a place where he was convinced no one would see and no one would find him. 
The whole thing reels, reads a bit careless. It certainly isn't a serious attempt at a coup. But still, we have to think about all that this act, this simple act, represented for Moses, the man who had been raised in Pharaoh's own household. Even if it wasn't all premeditated, you have to think about what Moses either would have considered beforehand he was giving up or recognized soon after that he did. What he had to give up to side with his people in this way. He had to know, again, he was burning his boat with the Egyptians, leaving all the pleasures and treasures that he had grown up with behind. In order, as, Hebrew, uh, as Hebrews 11 puts it, he chose to be mistreated with his own people. Chose to be mistreated instead of rem remain at a distance. Reading up to this point, we have to wonder then, given the significance of what Moses ha has done here, again, a prince of Egypt who stands in the gap for his people, we have to wonder, is this the moment that Israel rises from the ashes, turns the tide, and gathers behind a new mighty leader, and all of Egypt's worst nightmares come true? All of this, again, reads like a superhero's origin story. Isn't this what we expect a people who have been trapped so long in slavery to do, to rise up and to take back their freedom. But none of that happens, does it? First, Moses' plan backfires, to put it lightly. Even though he hoped to keep this murder a secret, it doesn't take long for word to spread. And I don't think it takes much imagination to wonder why. A slave driver hadn't shown up to work that day. Who do you think the Egyptians would have come after first? Oh, I don't know, maybe one of the slaves that he got along with so well? Is it hard to imagine that one of those slaves, probably under threat of their own life, as the Egyptians come after them looking to see who murdered this ruler? Is it so hard to imagine that one of these slaves would be willing to say, a uh, uh, I know, I know who did it. I saw it. You have to wonder if Moses had thought any of this through. But still, the whole thing would have been different, we have to wonder, if the Israelites had seen in Moses a rallying cry. Someone standing up. If they had been waiting for an excuse to seek their freedom and seen in, Mo in Moses the hero they needed to unite behind. After all, think about how much is going for Moses. He's educated. He's well-connected a man of compassion and action. And it seems the guy could handle himself in a fight. Doesn't it seem exactly like the kind of man that God would be looking for? Only his people, it turns out, didn't really want him to rescue them, did they? Almost immediately, they misjudge his motives when he tries to break up a fight among his he fellow Hebrews, in which they basically respond, who do you think you are? I mean, are you going to kill me too, Moses? Why? why? Why is it that they respond this way? We need to say, I think, that Moses, for all his good intentions, would have made their circumstances much worse. I mean, how do you think Egypt would have responded to have one of its slave drivers killed, even in secret? Do you think they would have shrugged their shoulders and simply moved along? You have to imagine the Hebrews, after all of this, saying, Thanks a lot, hero. 
But then again, perhaps their suffering had gone on so long and God had remained so silent that they had given up hope a long time ago that things would be different. Sometimes we have suffered long enough that we can't even imagine our lives being different. So much so we aren't even looking to be rescued anymore. Acts 7 puts it this way in verse 25. Moses supposed that his brothers, notice he puts it that way, his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. It shows that the bondage the Israelites are in isn't just physical. That's perhaps why the stakes are so high. It's spiritual and emotional as well. To be freed, God's people would need to be convinced they even could be. It wouldn't be the last time Moses would meet this kind of sneering skepticism and rejection. It wouldn't be the last time he would hear his people say, thanks but no thanks. Who made you a ruler over us? Surprising how long that complaint endures even on the other side of the exodus. Do you think this is how Moses saw these events turning out? He had left everything behind for, as Hebrews puts it, for his own brothers, only to be sent fleeing for his life with no home to turn to. Do you think he wondered, how could it all go so wrong? Have you ever had your best attempts to help only backfire or blow up in your face? Have you ever tried to help a friend only for them to use it against you? Have you ever stepped in for a family member only for them to say, mind your own business? At the very least, friends, we need to say that caring for the needs of others is risky, isn't it? You know, today we have reduced love into, a kind of, into just a series of trade-offs. We've said that the essence of love is really I scratch your back only if you scratch mine. But true love, the kind of love we most long for, is the kind of love we see here. It requires sacrifice. True love, in fact, is sacrifice without promise or expectation of return. Love at a basic level requires risk. The more you love, the more you risk. It's how relationships work. Which is why love, even as we need it, even as we long for it, can't we say that love is really difficult, especially for the people that we love the most? We want, I think, a love that risks for us. We want a love that sacrifices for us, that defends us no matter the cost. That's the kind of love we want. But we really struggle to give that kind of love to others, especially if there isn't the assurance that they will return it. You ever been in a relationship that felt really one-sided? We'll come back to this in a second, but there is something even more important here than an insight into what love is and how bounded us is up with risk. I do think Moses sets an important example we'll get back to in a second here, but there's something even more important here. The reason Moses failed isn't because that's what true love risks. 
but because even with all that Moses had to offer, all his qualifications, his education, his good intentions, all the good motives in the world were still not enough. When it came to it, his privileged position, his education, all of his capacities and passion for his people were not enough. There was no one more strategically positioned to save God's people than him, and even when it came to it, he could not do it. Not only is this important for us to recognize, it was, Mos it was important for Moses to recognize, for Moses to experience this firsthand. I mentioned that a few weeks ago, one of the reasons I think we love superheroes as a culture is because we love the idea of an individual who is armed with enough willpower and strength of character that can do anything, save anyone. We love the idea that maybe that could be us, that somehow if we just were to tap into the resources within, we have all, in, all that we need in ourselves to save our own lives, let alone those around us. Our culture loves to believe that each of us can be the hero of our own story, if only we are to believe, and believe in what? Usually ourselves. And when we meet with failure, all we need, and we say as a culture, is to get back up again, to do better, to try harder, as the great Rocky Balboa puts it. It ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Isn't that a good summary for our culture? How do you respond to failure? You get back up again. Yet where do we see Moses do that? In a sense, I think this is what we expect of the story of Moses, if he really is the hero, either to succeed the first time or to get back on that horse and try again. We don't expect him to go running for his life, tail tucked between his legs, ready to live out his days as a man without a home, leading sheep in the wilderness. And yet, it would seem failure. Moses' utter failure, without hope of going back at it again, is part of God's purposes for Moses as the school which would form the hero his people actually needed. That leads, leads us to number two, the school of failure. Let's consider our passage again. After all, Moses, his attempt doesn't just backfire. It backfires so badly that Pharaoh, the same Pharaoh who has given him protection for 40 years, now turns on Moses with one goal, to end his life. Who knows uh, how, how long uh, Moses would have had to even get ready but in the span of just a few days from the murder to now his fleeing, this prince of Egypt is sent packing, fleeing for his life, traveling for what have, would have been days, running as far as he can to arrive now at the Sinai wilderness of Midian, where he collapsed by a well. Now again, I love Marvel movies. I love really nerdy Star Wars movies. I love a lot of these sci-fi movies. One of the reasons I do is because of what is often called Easter eggs. Have you ever heard of an Easter egg in a movie? What is an Easter egg? An Easter egg 
is a character or symbol or place that only a really committed nerd like me can notice going on in the background. Usually the second time through or the third time through, you begin to notice these things, something that refers to a moment or event that's taken place somewhere else in the universe. Maybe something in the comics or in another movie. And an Easter egg often gives some sort of hidden message about what's to come, something that's about to happen. It's like when someone says, I've got a bad feeling about this in a Star Wars movie, right? You could say that an Easter egg is uh, found in our passage. Something going on in the background that we should, that the careful reader who is familiar with the Bible would cause, it would cause them to sit up in their chair, to take notice and grip their Bible, wondering what's about to take place next. Seems like a very ordinary detail, but it was specifically, I'm thinking of the well, where the author told us, tells us that Moses sat down. On the surface, sitting by a well isn't all that surprising. We have to remember that throughout history and still throughout much of the world today, drinkable water wasn't available on tap in a faucet, let alone to flush your toilet. In some places, like the barren wilderness that Moses had arrived, water would have been hard to find, nearly impossible, which made wells like this one incredibly important, very valuable, as we see in this passage, often fought over. Roads would have led to the town well. People would have gathered here and hung out. Travelers like Moses would have stopped here to rest before continuing on. And who knows, maybe in sitting by this well, well, Moses isn't sure that his journey is all that done. Still figuring this out as he goes along. The wells are important here for another reason. Because throughout the Bible, including the very first book of the Bible, probably also written by Moses, the book of Genesis, wells are threaded throughout, and it's at wells that God often provides in the most incredible of ways, and not just water. In fact, two of the patriarchs, the two forefathers of the Jewish faith, Isaac and Jacob, found their wives at wells like this one. And in the New Testament, Jesus, at another well, would offer to a woman what he called the water of life. Some fascinating events take place next in our passage. I want to come back to this well, but again, some fascinating things, including Moses going Batman again, single-handedly driving away these shepherds and watering the flocks that these sisters had all intended to care for themselves faster than they would have been able to do so on their own. Do you notice Ruel, or sometimes uh, he will be known later as Jethro, asks him, why are you back so fast? Again, this man can clearly handle himself, and he wouldn't be the first man to try and impress a pretty girl, let alone seven of them. But there is something even more important going on here in the background. Here, in this forsaken place, just when Moses, when his life seemed to come unraveled, here at the well, God provides again a wife, family, a home, a son. 
just when it seems Moses had irredeemably messed up his life, God provides. It's interesting, he doesn't just provide in spite of his failure. I think we need to see that God provides through his failure. After all, looking ahead, it is the next 40 years in Midian, perhaps more so than the previous 40, that will prepare Moses into the kind of rescuer God can actually make use of. In at least two ways, failure will be Moses' school. First, through failure, God severed ties with Moses' old life. Through failure, God was severing ties with Moses' old life. Think about it. For all that Moses risked in stepping up for all that, for that Hebrew slave, and all that he risked in identifying with his people, a man who had spent his whole life surrounded by more comfort than you can possibly imagine, in the palace of the most powerful nation in the world, it is difficult to imagine that Moses would have given all that up very easily. In fact, it may even be possible, I think it's more than likely, that Moses, in stepping in for this Israelite, fully intended to continue enjoying those privileges, perhaps intended to fight on behalf of his people, now as a positioned prince of Egypt. But still, he would have done so in many ways as an Egyptian. He would have looked Hebrew. His parents and siblings would have been Hebrew. But the way he spoke, the things he assumed, most importantly, the gods he may have worshipped would have been Egyptian. Who knows how long, even with his good intentions, they turned out to be bad, repeating the same routines of injustice every pharaoh had excused generation after generation. You see, the rescue God's people needed wasn't just to be brought out of bondage by Moses, but brought to God himself. God was redeeming people, but a people for himself. A God who would call them to have no other gods before him. Which meant that the leader of this people needed to know this God himself. We're going to get to this more in a couple of weeks, but while Moses may recognize God by name as the God of the Jewish forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, at least that much has been passed down to him, we have no clear indications that he knows this God very well, let alone worshipped this God as the only God. His whole life for 40 years would have been spent with Egyptians worshipping Egyptian gods as part of the culture, doing what Egyptians do. You can tell when God reveals himself to Moses later in chapter 3 that Moses is learning just as much about this God as all of his people soon will. And unless Moses can make a clean break with his old life and all that it represents, he would never be the rescuer his people needed, a rescuer that knew God. Friends, I know we hate failure and disappointment. I think of those parents out there who just want to keep your kids from making the same mistakes that you did. And you should. 
want those things. You don't want them to go unnecessarily into harm. Or I think of those of us who, out of a fear of failure, avoid any sort of risk-taking or vulnerability in relationships. Many of us, we avoid any chance that we could mess it up or get hurt. Or I think of those of us who have failed, who have failed, and then gone to great lengths to cover that failure up, gone to great lengths so that no one would know, perhaps done things you had never even thought you would do to maintain a certain image, or those whose failure has come to life, come to light, and everyone has seen it, and you wonder if your life will ever recover. Many of us carry deep regrets and spend our lives trying to avoid them. But is it possible that in failure, God is actually still caring for us? Still providing for us? Have you ever looked back at an unexpected failure or disappointment and saw that it actually got you out of a dangerous situation? Have you ever gone through an unexpected failure and it caused you to see an option you would have never otherwise considered? Has it ever changed your life and you only found out years later it was for the better? Think of a workaholic husband on the verge of losing his family who then loses his job. Or a young woman head over heels in love in a destructive relationship who experiences a breakup. In my own life, I think of when I had to leave uh, my dream school, Wheaton College, a, a school I thought in high school, I had, well, I, I prided myself in telling everyone where I was going, where, what I was going to accomplish. I was going to be a pediatrician. I was set on it. Get the army to pay for it all. Meet my future wife all of my life planned out, and then it didn't work out. I ended up back in my parents' home, which felt a little bit like exile, and going to a state school where my faith was openly mocked and opposed. It was there when what I consider to be a great failure of my dreams that I not only grew the know God and grew in my desire for others to know him as well. But that's where I, I first experienced my own call to pastoral ministry. Realized that that's wanted a, what I wanted to spend my life doing, was pointing other people to Christ. And that eventually, that path led me, in fact, to meet my future wife. I think how my life would have turned out, and how my soul would have turned out, if I got all of that I thought that I wanted. Sometimes it's only failure that severs our tides with an old life we needed to lose. And sometimes it's in failure that God finally gets a hold of us. Sometimes it's only in failure that we hear God's voice. Which leads us to the second and second way in which God was caring for Moses. Through failure, God shaped Moses' character into something useful. Through failure, God shaped 
Moses' character into something useful. Again, I've already mentioned all that Moses had going for him. His education, his position, his strength, his passion for the vulnerable. Both of those things, I mean, all of those things show up in both places, both in Egypt and in Midian, as he defends these seven sisters. However, had Moses become the hero in Egypt, we have to say that he would always have relied on his capacities and abilities. And more importantly, had he done so, rescue would have never actually come. It's not just that his capacities were insufficient for the task, although that is very true. It's that the very reliance he would have had on his own strength, this dependence upon himself, that is what would have destroyed him and the people that he led. What God wanted to produce and what God always wants to produce in those who follow him, let alone those who lead those who follow him, is not rugged independence. As much as that is a dominant value in our culture. Instead, what he wants to produce in those who would, fol uh, who would follow him is desperate dependence. Not so much a recognition of our own ability, but our recognition of our inability, our insufficiency, and only his ability and his ability alone to save. In other words, Moses needed to simp not simply to know, but to experience that rescue could not come by his hand. He needed to lose, in a sense, his self-belief, not gain it if he was going to ever rely on God. And often failure, even our greatest mistakes, coming to the end of ourselves is the only thing that can teach this to us. I realize how strange this is, and this is one of the things that makes a Christian so distinct in a time period in which the primary value is rugged independence, believing in ourselves, relying on ourselves before we rely on anyone else. Our culture teaches us all the time that is where hope is found. And sometimes we even find it in the church. The Bible preaches very much the opposite. In a couple of weeks, when we get back to Moses, now 40 years later, I have to tell you, he is going to seem rather pathetic. A washed-up version of who he used to be. Now 80 years old, likely imagining he will die as a foreigner, out within the sheepfolds of Mount Sinai. He doesn't expect to receive a call into God's service. He had been there, tried that, failed at it. And as sad as, that, as it is, it's actually that posture, that deep sense of his own inability that makes him more useful than any of his qualifications. Now don't hear me wrong. Failure doesn't always produce that kind of person. Failure can have a way of making somebody more self-focused than they ever were before. You ever seen that take place? Someone who lives in the past, who brings up their failure over and over again, who wastes their days away in self-pity, sometimes for years, unable to see beyond their own navel. Failure can produce a self-focused person. But failure can also produce something incredible 
and what Jesus so wisely calls a poverty of self. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus begins his famous Beatitudes, his famous blessed are statements with this line. I wonder if you know it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? And how in the world can those who have it consider themselves blessed? I mean, who wants to be poor? Now, this doesn't mean, and I need to be very clear, this poverty of spirit is not some kind of self-hatred or some, some sort of shame-induced depression. That, like arrogance, can be another form of self-focus. Self-pity can actually be a very powerful form of self-focus, one that's just as much difficult to get over as pride. No, to be poor in spirit is not about hating oneself. It is about true humility, which ironically is not, ex not about having some sort of balanced view of self, trying not to have too high a view of self or too low a view of self, but to have rather a medium view of self. It's instead what C.S. Lewis calls self-forgetfulness. What does he mean by this? Self-poverty, to be poor in spirit, means to be so unimpressed with my own capacities and qualifications. It means to have given up on finding my sense of significance in what I do, in what I own, in who I'm related to. Self-poverty is about finding my sense of significance in something that's actually stable, something that is not myself. It's actually depending on something that is of true security. Self-poverty is about depending on God alone. Why this dependence? Why this sense of self-poverty? Why is this true humility so vital for someone like Moses? That's the question. Well, God, in his wisdom, the more you read the Bible, the more you have to find that God, in his wonderful, ironic, merciful wisdom, chooses to, to work not through the strong and impressive, but often through the weak, the poor, and the vulnerable, the least likely, the last picks for the dodgeball team, which gives me a lot of comfort. He works through those whose strength so obviously cannot save them. He works through them because when he does, when he works through the weak, those who have given up trusting themselves, he and he alone gets the credit. He gets the chance to show off, and he gets the glory that he alone deserves. Because the person who has seen God work for, firsthand is not pointing at their resume, is not pointing them to, to themselves at all, is pointing behind themselves saying, do you see him? Do you see how good he is? That saved a wretch like me? I, I realize everything about our culture, again, emphasizes depending upon ourselves. This rugged independence sometimes has leaked into the church as well, lest we point the finger at others. It shows up when we refuse to open up to others and reveal our weakness. When we persist in community, never revealing our true self, but only of image. It shows up when we become overly impressed on how excellent we can do things, on how polished and put together maybe even church services can be. It shows up when we deny someone patience 
and kindness when they fail miserably. But it turns out, so long as we depend upon ourselves, on our plans, on our strengths, on our capacities, we become like a, lo- uh, like a clogged pipe. We keep the power and mercy of God from flowing through us. Often it is only when we finally get over ourselves that God shows off in power. It is those who are unclogged of pride and self-reliance that God tends to use as conduits of his grace, showing off his strength in the midst of their weakness, even through it. Paul will even say that God's power is made perfect in weakness. For all that Moses had going for him, this wouldn't be the only time that Moses faced opposition. And when the stakes were stacked against him, and not only his people wanted to follow him, even after exile, if he tried to depend upon himself there, he would be trapped trying to prove himself over and over again and only grow in resentment of those he led. And they would simply never make it. To rescue God's people and to lead them, what he needed is a poverty of spirit. And if we want to be useful in God's service, we need it as well. You know, we say often that we, at our church, we don't want to take ourselves very seriously. We take our sin very seriously, we take our God very seriously and what he has said, but ourselves, eh, not so much. In fact, we hope to create a kind of culture in our church where we can risk and fail and to help one other along, to make him famous. He's the only impressive one, after all. Now, I wish I could say this because it was actually true, because that's how I lead most naturally, but I don't. It's more aspirational than anything. It's the kind of leader I want to be, the kind of church I want to help us all cultivate, because you and I know we tend to take ourselves way too seriously, don't we? How are we to gain this kind of humility? Well, failure is one path. Could it be that the decisions or failures or missed opportunities that you regret most are God's tools to shape you into something useful in the lives of others? Could it be that the very things you are trying to spare your kids from are actually the way that God gets a hold of them? But like I pointed out before, I I think, I fear that failure cannot do this on its own. Failure cannot produce humble people on its own. It just makes us more self-focused and self-pitying, not less. It turns out the only thing that can truly produce this deep humility and deep dependence is the gospel itself, which leads us to last, number three, the success of failure. The success of failure. I want to look at Hebrews chapter 11, how the author of Hebrews actually processes these same events. Actually, as an example uh, in the famous so-called Hall of Faith. It speaks of Moses this way in verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. 
It's interesting. The author of Hebrews refers to all of these things that Moses experienced as, if we can put verse 25 on the screen, I'm sorry, 26. Do you notice how he refers to all of these things? Can we put 26 on the screen? Thank you. He considered the reproach of Christ. That seems like kind of a stretch. How can Moses experience the approach, uh, reproach of Christ a thousand years before Jesus would even live? What I'm convinced the author means is that we actually cannot rightly read these events in Moses' life without seeing where they point to Jesus himself, who we will see at various points resembles Moses, but in a true and better way. He resembles Moses only in the way that an actual grapefruit resembles a pomegranate LaCroix. Jesus is the actual thing, the hero, the picture of faith we really need, to which Jesus only, to, sorry, to which only Moses points. And like Moses, Jesus is drawn to his people, so aware of what we are experiencing in our sin, our own bondage, a great deal of which we have inflicted on ourselves, that he chose instead to be mistreated with us, even for us, and gave up even greater privileges than Moses ever had to imagine giving up to do so. Philippians chapter 2 puts it this way, when the Son of God was sent by the Father to be a, become a man, he did so in a sense by emptying himself. Now, this doesn't mean he stopped being God. He was fully God and fully man. But it does mean that he gave up the privilege of being recognized as God openly. He gave up the privilege of using all of his privileges and powers for his own self-interest. He only served his father's will. And for that, instead, he took on the fragility and sorrows of what it meant to be human, experiencing everything that we have an infinite degree. Only then, like Moses, to then be rejected by his own people. John 1 tells us he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Misjudged and dismissed by the very people that Jesus had come to save, which includes you and me. But unlike Moses, Jesus did not escape his enemies. He didn't run away and save his life. Rather, he fell into the hands of his enemies, delivered there by his own will, going there purposefully, so that what many thought was his greatest failure turned out to be the greatest victory the universe has ever, ever beholden. That his apparent failure, which was no failure at all, might result in our victory, Dying that we might live, that we might break from our stubborn reliance upon and worship of ourselves to worship him. That even our failures and mistakes might be made useful to our God for his glory and our joy. That he would make up, he would make use of those who feel like their time is done that their days are ever over, that they feel washed up. Some of us feel like we have no strength left, no purpose to be had, no way that God could use us again. Friends, 
Christ's death and resurrection proves the fact that God knows who he saves and still has works for you to do, even if you feel like you only come with a mess of failures. Could it be that in his sovereign purposes, they've prepared you for a time like this? It is only in considering what our true and better Jesus has given up for us that we will become willing ourselves to give up on finding our significance and our advantages and our credentials and our resumes. To give up on finding our significance and confidence in anything about us at all. In fact, we find one author, Paul, in the New Testament who experienced this firsthand, speaking with the kind of humility I think I want as well and can only be produced by the cross of Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 3, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Do you want to know that freedom? Do you want to give up on taking yourself so seriously? Find your identity in something concrete and secure. In this season of prayer, we need to find our even, even more so desperate dependence upon him to receive whatever he would bring in our lives as the means by which he makes us useful to his service to believe that this is not about us. This is about him and his glory. Father, we need your help because we do not long for those things on our own. We only long to make our own reputations and selves significant. Lord, we couldn't do so, and we'd become monsters along the way. Thank you that in your mercy you've seen us as we are, and you've done all that is necessary to save us from this stubborn self-worship. Would we see what Christ has endured for our sake, the pleasures he gave up, that we might know and follow and worship him, that we might even accept failure without rushing into it, without trying to inflict it upon ourselves we might receive even failure as your means, your school of giving us the self-poverty we need, of breaking us from the life we needed to leave behind. Do whatever it takes that we would be servants who bring you much gain, even if we might need to become lesser so that he would become great. And it's for Jesus' sake, for his match 